two, one. Hello and welcome back to Hayden's Entertainment Hour. It's been a long time, hasn't it? The last time I made a podcast was when I went over my favorite and least favorite movies from 2020. That's been a long gap for most people. So when I thought about doing the podcast this year, honestly, moving on to season three was difficult because obviously Brian would not be joining me. And me and Brian had our talks about why he didn't want to come back, and I respectively said, all right, you know what, you don't want to come back? That's perfectly fine, I'll just do the podcast without you. But then I thought deep down, I was like, well, doing this solo gets very boring after a while. So I gave out that request, like, hey, if anybody would like to come on and talk about movies with me or just anything in general, I'm here to talk about it. Well, somebody actually took the request and decided, hey, you know what, I'll talk with Hayden about two movies that both came out last year, but we're going to do now because it's January, and unless people want to talk about that new Liam Neeson movie, then there's not anything else to really talk about. But I have a guest today, he actually has a YouTube channel, so uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, hey there, uh, my name is Dalton Westmore from Westmore Films. Uh, All right. Anything else you like to add about yourself? Well, uh, mainly my YouTube channel is uh, uh, currently focused around uh, mostly me just rambling about nerd stuff. Uh, I've g- got into uh, long-form video essay content around like last August, and so I've been trying to do more of that. Yeah. So Dalton's YouTube channel, if you like Star Wars content, he just put out his Mandalorian Season 2 video. I would recommend people go out and check it. It's a thorough analysis of the entire season. I think he teased a little bit that he might be talking about Boba Fett more in depth later on, but uh, Dalton's got some great content on his channel. Would recommend to check it out. But today we are going to be going over two movies, and I think these two movies have been talked about in depth by most people because both came out in December, and we kind of missed the curve on these because everybody talked about them when they came out on Christmas, and now it's kind of died off as we move into February, but we thought that we'd give our two cents on these movies because, like I said, I wanted to talk about Soul more in my best of the year list, but I never got into it, and now I have a chance today. So Soul is the brand new Disney Pixar movie, and it is directed by Pete Docter, who has made one of my favorite Pixar movies of all time and up, and this movie is all about a man named Joe Garner who is a band teacher but has aspirations to play a big gig someday. He wants to do more with his career. And one day when he finally gets a shot to pull off the said gig, he ends up falling through a sewer drain and ends up waking up in the great beyond. Of course, Joe does not want to be in the great beyond and wants to get back to his big gig, but ends up having to mentor and coach a soul named 22. Hijinks ensue, Joe learns a lot about himself and so does 22. So, I guess I will say, I rather enjoyed Soul. This felt like it was a good return to form for Pixar. Dalton, what were your thoughts on Soul? Well, yeah, I kind of agree with you there that this is a good return to form for them. Because I remember I saw uh, Onward last mm-hmm. last year, too. And so, that kind of, like, it kind of felt like it was alright. Like, I didn't hate it. Mm-hmm. I'm, but I feel like I mainly enjoyed it for, like, the more fantasy aspects of the film than anything the film did itself. Yeah. Me, me, I thought it was more of a mediocre uh, movie that came out of Disney Pixar. I was like, this just kind of feels very safe. Like yeah. Chris Pratt was in it, Tom Holland's <laughs> in it. It's familiar faces and voices that you recognize. The story was not really anything engaging to me. I thought the third act kind of saved the movie because the ending I thought was yeah. really well done, but I just didn't enjoy it overall. But with Soul, just from like start to finish and i know i have like a pete doctor bias i tend to like his movies a lot more but it just felt like a complete story in a way yeah 
like and i think also what was kind of interesting because i rewatched uh soul today in preparation for talking with you about it and i think what was interesting about the movie is that there were a lot of similarities to between the two movies that i thought were interesting yeah um one thing i i think i liked about soul in particular was kind of joe as a character because i know there's a whole argument that's going on like joe does not really go through an arc but in this movie i think he definitely does like some people have argued at the beginning when there's that band teacher subplot where he's like this teacher that's trying to inspire these kids that gets dropped as soon as he picks up the gig and he starts focusing more on that and it isn't until the ending where he's reflecting that he finally wants to do more with his life and people say like his artist uh, his arc is complete because he wants go to go back and be a band teacher but like i'm not 100 percent that like he wants to truly go back and be a band teacher like it's kind of left vague for the audience to decide and i like that in a way because it does feel like joe still goes through an arc it does feel like he does learn like not to be selfish take life for granted stop looking at the little things like they're nothing and learn to enjoy life for the little things and there was just a lot of things that i liked about joe's character versus what i liked about the two onward leads which i could not tell you the name of <laughs> same what i think was interesting about uh joe's arc is like i kind of like agree with what you said is that he starts to grow a bit more out of himself and what i thought was interesting when like i first watched it with my family like i watched it with my family and then i watched it uh by mm -hmm. myself so it was kind of interesting to see like him having like a literal out of body experience and like seeing yeah. how like he normally interacts with people in a way that he doesn't really normally get to see because he's so self-absorbed with himself. Yeah. The Great Beyond was fun to play around in. I thought that was a good mix of like 2D and 3D animation for Pixar. Like, first off, I always enjoy when Pixar experiments. I like it when they're super creative with their animation. And it felt like Pete Doctor just told the animators, go wild. Uh, get some Aussie voice actors to do the people from The Great Beyond and just like go wild with it. And I, I really enjoyed The Great Beyond. I will admit, it did feel like a lot of the things they were explaining were just resolved by them saying it's complicated or well it's hard to explain to your poor human mind and i'm like okay so they're gonna be really vague about this and i'm 50 50 on that still i kind of <laughs> like it when movies go more in depth into the world building but i also at the same time understand this is for like little kids even though this felt more mature which if it's going for that mature feel then maybe explain it more to the audience yeah. i don't know i'm still 50 50 yeah. on that the main thing that I kind of like appreciated about uh, the Great Beyond was like how creative they were with the visuals, like mm -hmm. especially with the blend of like uh, 2D characters and 3D environments, and stuff like that. Yeah, I I think that too. And like one thing in particular that I thought was going to actually kill the movie for me was Tina Fey. Now, it's nothing against Tina Fey as an actress or anything. I think she can be funny in comedies, but I was just thinking like, okay, is she really going to make this character or is it just going to be Tina Fey playing herself? It's a bit of both in a way, I would say. Like, there are moments where it's like Tina Fey's style of comedy is in there, but at the same time, it feels like she's committed to 22. And 22 is such a fascinating character. I don't know about you, but like... I enjoyed watching her grow a little bit more as the movie goes on because she can't go possess a body, obviously. She talks about how she has to stay here and she has to learn everything through, this, uh, through the perspectives of past humans. But like what was interesting about her is seeing her look at the world as this way of like being so cynical and then being like, wow, when you actually experience it, it is quite beautiful. Yeah, um, I'm not too familiar with Tina Fey's work, so I couldn't really mm -hmm. comment about that aspect. But I really like how um, they use uh, 22 in the film because 
it was like because like uh joe mentoring her it's like it was like uh, a parallel to um him teaching his students and i think it was a more obvious way for him to see the effect of that he has on his students because like you kind of get the impression from like the start of the film that uh yeah he i think he does care about teaching his students but like that's not really his priority his main priority are his own goals right you know what i mean yeah yeah i would say i would agree with that i feel like his own goals do at some point kind of take over most of the movie like uh for instance when he first gets there and he's just like running around all the jerry's and is like i need to get back because my gig is more important than anything else and then he's kind of trying to like force 22 to just find something that she doesn't truly care about which leads to them going out into that one sequence where they're with all the lost souls and they're like walking around and they're like going around helping these lost souls find their souls and then the minute joe sees that this hippie guy can get him back to his body he just like jumps at it he doesn't question it he's like i gotta get back there into it and he just doesn't listen and the consequence is where we get kind of the kitty humor where he is in the cat's body and yeah. 22 is in his body <laughs> And I will admit, this part of the movie has been the most controversial because a lot of people say this is where it turns into a goofy Pixar movie. I would argue it's not completely that. Like, I get it. Obviously, him being a cat is meant to be hilarious. But, like, I feel like there's still a lot more maturity in those sequences because, for instance, when Joe first gets to Earth, he thinks it's dirty, it's gross, there's nothing good about it. And he just brings 22 a slice of pizza and she's blown away by it because she's never really gotten to taste it because she doesn't have any of her senses. And then, of course, when they're, like, going around to the barber shop, obviously, she's, like, really weird. It's something that Joe wouldn't normally do. She's sitting in the chair. She wants a lollipop. She's, like, talking about all of these crazy existential things. And it's amazing to watch that play out because you not only see that 22 is growing to, like, Earth and the interactions with people more, but Joe also realizes that because he was so self-absorbed and only wanted to talk about himself and his music, that he missed out on the little things like learning about his barber wanted to be a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. I think what was uh, really interesting for me about that sequence that you just talked about with uh, him finding out more about his barber, it kind of um, it kind of gave me a deep cut to myself because I feel like a lot of times, mm -hmm. like when I talk with other people, that I'm not really observant of like their interests and mainly uh, I mainly want to focus on uh, talking about the things that I'm into and not really pay too much attention to like the things that they actually like. So, yeah. so it was interesting yeah. to have that kind of experience where uh, I was kind of questioning myself like, oh, ha, it's, it's kind of funny that this guy is doing this and then taking a step back and being like, wait, am I doing this myself? Yeah, yeah. It, the movie really does make you do that at times. And I think especially the ending, because we could go through everything. Like, obviously, Terry is on the hunt for them, but that's, like, the most minuscule subplot on the planet. And, like, basically all Terry does is pat himself on the back, but then, you know, his plan was all for nothing. Um, but, like, I think the, the sequence where Joe plays the piano and reflects on everything was, like, perfect. And if the movie would have ended with, like, that vagueness of if he goes back to help 22... I probably would have loved it because that feels like the mature narrative but i will admit this movie does get into something that i have issues with and it's always that big overstuffed pixar finale because and i'll and i'll talk about this a little bit more in depth but like i feel like the movie could have ended there during the piano hmm. sequence and left all the vagueness of joe and like what happens next but it has that big pixar finale which i'll get into in a minute that i just did not like as much as i thought i would yeah 
I kind of want to like uh, before I get to that, I kind of want to talk about like Terry real quick because like oh yeah, uh, yeah, the interesting thing about this movie and like what when I mentioned earlier, like this and Soul and Onward having uh, similar things is that I think the big thing that these two, those two films both have is that they don't really have like a big over the top villain. Cause, mm-hmm. that's, yeah, because like true. with Onward, you had like the curse thing that kind of just manifested itself as like a dragon that they had to fight, and then in this movie yeah. you have Terry, who's like less of like a really menacing villain, and he's more like a force of nature. So he's not um, evil uh, of himself. If you, he's kind of mm-hmm. just doing his job, so you can't really hate him. So he's more fun to watch no, instead no. of just be like. Oh, I can't wait for him to get his comeuppance, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, too, the thing about Terry that's so refreshing is that um, I, I think the actress that played uh, Terry actually has done other Pixar works. Like, I think uh, she's played the grandma in Moana, if you remember that. And she was able to switch her voice up so much to play Terry in this movie. And I don't know much about the actress, but I hear she's a very phenomenal voice actress. And, like, I got to give credit where credit's due. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty impressive voice work. Yeah, I didn't even know that Terry was voiced by a woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, but anyways, I guess, do you want to jump into the finale a little bit? Yeah, I mean... I kind of want to. I kind of want to like understand your explanation of it because, like, the main thing I understood about it, like before, like the main people, that main thing that people have talked about is that the film kind of ends abruptly. Yes. So I kind of just want to like get your explanation for how you feel about the ending, and then I can kind of just respond to that. Okay, so like I said, I, I love the movie up until, and like I said, when it got to that scene where Joe is playing the piano and reflecting on everything, I was in love with that. That was perfectly Pixar storytelling. It reminded me of the first like few minutes of Up, where it's music over Carl and his wife's uh, entire mm-hmm. marriage, and then obviously getting to old age. It felt like that returned to form for Pixar, but the one thing I don't like about most Pixar finales is they're like these big overstuffed things. Like Onward, like as much as I like the third act, it turns into this big action movie at one point towards the ending. And of course, then you get that nice moment where they meet or not Barley. Is it? It might be. It might be where he finally gets to see his dad. And Ian is of course trapped behind the rocks. But like with this one, what I didn't like is in the movie continues on 22 becomes a lost soul. Hijinks ensue. Terry gets tangled up. And then the whatever possessed 22 ends up swallowing Joel or not Joel, Joe, and he ends up going through, like, these, like, sand demon kind of things, and they're all just screaming, you're worthless, you're worth nothing. I'm like, okay, I get the point, you're 22's depressed and heartbroken, but it was just, like, on the nose, and it felt like so much was going on there, like, I was like, this isn't needed. You could have had a really mature uh, mature scene where the two just sit down and talk about it, but I know this is a kid's movie first, and obviously they gotta do something, like, that will keep kids entertained, but I felt like either having something like that rather than just this big gigantic finale where this big demon 22 swallows Joe and they go back and forth with sand demons. I didn't think that was necessary. And also I will say this about the ending. I would have liked the ending if Joe sacrificed himself and let 22 start a new life. I feel like that would have completed his arc in a way because he did realize his life was worth something and that there was a lot more things in his life that was worth living for. And I just really feel like his arc would have completed if he went to the great beyond and the movie ended. 
But I did not like the fact that the movie was like, psych, you're actually going to go back to Earth because we're going to give you a second chance. And then the movie's just going to end there abruptly and like leave it vague for the audience. I I really feel like Joe's arc would have been complete to me if the movie ends with like him fading into the great beyond. Because again, I like that Pixar maturity. Yeah. I really do. So I guess you can respond. Yeah, I can it. like understand where you're coming from, even if I like don't necessarily agree. I think what was interesting mm-hmm. about like the sequence where like uh, Joe is inside the giant lost soul of 22 is that well, I didn't notice this the first time I watched the movie and I'm glad I rewatched it again because like when you're going through all the sand demons if you look closely enough they're all like the the different versions of the men they're all the different mentors that 22 has had over the millennia mm-hmm. so like you could see like Mother Teresa and Abraham Lincoln and like you can even see Muhammad yeah. Ali at one point and so mm-hmm. like what was interesting to me like thinking about that scene now is that she never took any of those characters ser- seriously when they were trying to mentor her before, right? But so, like, yeah. now, when, like, she's actually lived life and had this experience with a mentor that she's actually listened to, like, she's actually, like, those comments that Gio made to her about, like, you're only li- you only appreciate life because you stole mine, you, you're worthless, all that, like, that's actually hitting home more than it did previously, yeah. And then, like, you have the giant Joe at the end that Joe has to face off against. Like, kind of just like the manifestation yeah. of him, all his negativity inside 22. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, so anyways, like I said, for, for many people, it's the movie ending yeah. abruptly is mostly their complaint. And obviously the divisive ending with should Joe have like gone into the great beyond or is it okay that he gets the cop out? And like I said, I shared my two cents on it. I guess now you can tell me your yeah. thoughts. On I, th- I honestly, I think I would have been happy either way with it, either Joe yeah. going into the great beyond or Joe living his life. Cause like the ending is still ambiguous. Because, like, is. what is Joe going to do now with his life? Is he going to keep doing uh, the jazz? Even though, like, he's kind of realized... He's kind of come off that emotional high of, like, yeah, I finally accomplished this big thing in my life I've been looking forward to, but what am I going to do next? Or is he kind of just going to go back to teaching full-time now that he has this renewed passion for teaching? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that's the thing about Soul is, like, Compared to Onward, which I think most people watched and forgot about, I think this one has stuck around because there's so much to unpack with it. And I think even our talking about the movie now has really kind of made us realize, like, there's so much to unpack and so much rich storytelling in it that I feel like the sad thing is I know maybe the next Pixar movie that comes out will not have Pete Doctor's isms in it, but, like, I feel like maybe it'll just be good enough. I don't know, but my fear is that mediocre Pixar movies might come out from here on out, but I guess I don't know because I don't know much about the future Same. of Pixar. I think, uh, I think what is good about uh, Soul as compared to Onward, like how you mentioned, because like, when I do remember stuff about Onward, it's mainly just the fantasy stuff like uh, the dragon at the end or the manticore and stuff like that. But I remember, but when I remember stuff mm-hmm. from Soul, it's it's pretty much stuff original stuff that the movie is doing, like the soundtrack or the visuals and stuff like that. So I think uh, that's a much more positive um, remembering type thing, if you understand what I mean. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, if I had to wrap up Soul in a nutshell and just basically give my final thoughts, like I said, 
This is probably the most mature storytelling from Pixar we've gotten in quite some time. It's very refreshing to get a movie that feels like it cares about its story and audience compared to Onward. Joe is a great character and watching him slowly learn to not take life for granted and do more than just his ambitions was honestly really touching. Seeing 22 go from this cynical soul that thought she would never have a life on Earth to seeing that life through her perspective and through a human body actually had meaning in it. Uh, to see Terry just go around and try to thwart them, but he was just really trying to make himself a hero was kind of fun to play around with. And just overall, I like the first two thirds of this movie. Like I said, the third act, I feel like gets into some of the Pixarisms that I don't really like about some of their more recent movies. And the ending for me is still kind of 50-50. I really would have liked a Joe sacrifice ending, but I know I don't work at Pixar. I know I'm not great at making kids movies or coming up with ideas for those. So I will probably never work <laughs> in that department ever, which is kind of the sad truth. Um, but I, I think I gave this movie like an eight out of 10 on letterbox and I'm going to leave it as that for now. Yeah. Um, just continuing off of what you said, like, um, yeah, I kind of like how mature that this, how mature the story is. I think there were some mature elements in onward, but like not really enough to make mm -hmm. the story be memorable. Like the main mature moment that stuck out to me was like, you never really seeing the dad's face throughout the film which is a motif that i liked like whenever he was alive like you didn't see his face at all which was kind of nice but mm -hmm. like that's the main mature element i remember that i think uh onward's story is yeah. going to be more remembered for no nah, i'm sorry i think soul's story is going to be more remembered for <laughs> the mature stuff that it does so yeah and and now that Pete Doctor is the head of Pixar, I hope we finally get more creative Disney movies than corporate because John Lasseter really sold his soul to the Cars franchise <laughs> at some point and the Planes franchise and is bad. It was a real bad stint for a while. We're going to get a sequel to Cars 2. We need more spy I mean, movies. Hey, I, I guess we do. We need Mater to be the lead. Um, but yeah, that's the thing about Pixar. It's always good to talk about some of their new works that comes out. Glad I got to unpack mm -hmm. this movie with someone. Uh, so the next movie we shall move into is going to... Alright, so the next movie me and Dalton are going to talk about is Wonder Woman 84. Uh, this movie obviously has been getting a lot of mixed bags from a lot of people. Um, I could almost damn near say this is one of the most divisive movies talked about right now because you either love this movie and think that it is just balls to the walls fun or you hate this movie and think it is structured terribly, its story is super bad because apparently there's never no in-between with these things anymore. I don't know why people can't just say a movie's okay, but it feels like if you're not on one side of the spectrum or the other, you're just you're wrong apparently. I don't get it. But anyways, Wonder Woman 84... Uh, the movie is basically kind of just like the wish fulfillment movie if I wanted to give it a plot synopsis like people are wishing for things and they're realizing that wishes have consequences it's a monkey's paw scenario um, a lot happens in Wonder Woman 84 but before we get into it I wanted to talk about the first Wonder Woman a little bit because uh, Dalton I don't know if you know this but I like the first Wonder Woman until it gets to about the third act and it becomes the uh, Sir Topham Hat character turns out to be Ares, and it becomes a Zack Snyder finale, and I'm like, nah, I'm not really vibing with this anymore. Other than the Chris Pat, uh, Pratt sacrifice, I thought the movie kind of ended a little meh, in my opinion, but, like, I thought Wonder Woman was a good first setup, and I thought, like, it was one of the better DCU movies to come out at the time, so what were your thoughts on the first Wonder Woman? 
Well, uh, I kind of had the same opinion of it that um, most people have of, like, it was good up until, like, the finale. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in preparation for coming to talk on today, I rewatched it because I didn't get the chance to rewatch it because uh, I decided to watch uh, Wonder Woman 84 first. It was close to the end of its run on HBO max for the time being mm-hmm. and so i didn't have the time to watch that before and so it was kind of interesting revisiting it after i watched wonder woman and like i kind of just sat back after the movie was over and i was like i honestly think because like before i rewatched it i was kind of saying to people that i talked about it is like is like i i think i liked the first movie more than the sequel but mm-hmm. i think that uh, Wonder Woman 84 was more consistently good, right? And okay. And then after watching it, I realized that wow, this movie is not nearly as good as I remember. Oh, really? Are there certain things you didn't like about it as much? <laughs> yeah, but I think what's interesting rewatching this film is like seeing all these things that I did not like about the first Wonder Woman, and then uh, Wonder Woman 84. Uh, takes all those things and either removes them completely from the story or uh, does them better. Okay. Um, So, for me, I I really like the first Wonder Woman, and it kind of felt like, alright, where do they go next? And I remember seeing the trailer for it, I was like, alright, it's set in 1984, is this going to be specific in any way, shape, or form? And I, I honestly, at one point, was very excited to see it, but then it just kept getting delayed, and I was like, all right, it's kind of, this is kind of becoming like Black Widow for me, Lord. Like, <laughs> if it comes out, yeah, it'd be great to see, but, like, I'm not as hyped up for it as I once was. Like, it's the same thing with the Kingsman movie, the new Spider-Man movie, the new James Bond movie. Every time it gets delayed, my interest goes down. Like, the hype for it just kept going down. Well, it came out on Christmas. I remember seeing it with Brian, and... Him and I were split after this movie because Brian liked it, from what I remember, but I did not. I had a lot of issues with the movie. I spent a few weeks thinking about it. I saw it again with my girlfriend, and I still really do not like Wonder Woman 84. I don't know if it's because like I'm being too cynical on it, or I just didn't get anything out of it that I personally like in a movie, but I do not like Wonder Woman 84, so I'm on that side of the spectrum. Uh, Dalton, you do like it, though, so this will be an interesting review for us to unpack our points on it. Um, so let's not kill each other during this thing, shall we? Uh, I, uh, we'll try. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, But I don't know if a lot of you guys know, uh, Red Letter Media put out a video talking about Wonder Woman 84. Um, That was one of the first reviews I watched when it came out before Chris Stuckman. But I'd recommend that one just because, like, even if you don't care about the review, it's just funny watching Mike misremember things the entire review. So, (laughs) yeah, check that one out. It's a pretty good half in the bag. Um, But anyways, with Wonder Woman 84, I'm going to say right off the bat, I enjoyed the first act of the movie. I think the setup was very good for everything. Like, the mall sequence reminded me of the Raimi films. And I know that's, like, a dead horse, but, like, it really did with how whimsical and fun it was. Like, I don't know if you got the same vibe. Oh, I I did, big time. Like, as soon as, like, uh, the mall scene kind of just kicked off with the goon dropping his gun, I was like, oh, they're going for more of a Raimi-type feel for this movie, and I am in love with it. Because the mm-hmm. first Spider-Man movie is like one of my favorite superhero movies growing up as a kid. Yeah, and so it was really, it was really interesting to see uh, Wonder Woman take this different direction. Because like it seems like after uh, Justice League came out, DC kind of wanted to move away from like 
Zack Snyder's version of the DCU, which has allowed the films to be better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say like when Shazam came out and it was this colorful kitty candy filled mess, I was like, oh, yeah, this is something Zack Snyder would absolutely hate. (laughs) They don't care because it made a lot of money. Aquaman was like the biggest dude bro movie ever. They did not care. Birds of Prey was a very nice entry to the DCEU as like its own little standalone thing somewhat. And I feel like now that the DCEU is like going for this more colorful, whimsical direction, like they'll still make R-rated films if they can. I I like this direction they're going in. Obviously, there's the argument, is Joker part of the DCU? And I'm just going to say, no, it's not. It is a standalone movie with Joaquin Phoenix. It's 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 not even on Zack Snyder par level dark. It's just like its own thing. But like, I, I like this new direction for the DCEU to go for the more Marvel whimsical route because <laughs> as much as I, you know, I'm mixed on Zack Snyder as a director and I don't think everything he makes is terrible, I do think that it is better for something like the DCEU to branch out and be more fun because if it's this dark, edgy universe, it's never going to catch up with Marvel. It's yeah. never going to work. I think it's interesting that you may that I think it's interesting that you mentioned Zack Snyder because uh, I'm planning on making a more in-depth video look at him because like the majority of like YouTube content that I've seen of him is more kind of just like him being the. Uh, but of jokes of the YouTube community and like I've yeah. done had my fair share of doing that but like I kind of want to get a better understanding of like why do people do this and I am kind of glad that uh, DC is going in this different direction because like I think they could do um, a very a more serious more dark universe and that would and that would make it stand out a lot more for Marvel but I think like the biggest problem was like aside from like kind of the DCU like those first few movies kind of just like with the dark edge that they have they kind of seem to be uh living in Nolan's shadow and I think that um kind of just like moving off and like doing these more uh fun like corny films has uh been a lot better for them it's it seems like it's less obvious of them it's more moving away from them like just trying to directly copy Marvel's formula. And I like this uh, angle that they're doing much better. Yeah. And I think that's going to be something that's divisive for most people because a lot of people have grown up loving the Snyderverse and what it is. Mm -hmm. And they're very excited for that four-hour cut that I will probably not touch when it first comes out because that's four hours, man. And look, Endgame was three hours and trying to rewatch that is hard enough as is. Four (laughs) hours? Like, come on, Zach. Can we not do this, please? And I get it. It's one of, like, HBO's biggest selling launches and they're going to continue that with any DC property that comes out. But, like, I don't know. I guess I'll maybe check it out if I have time. I'll probably watch it in parts, if anything, but we'll see. But um, I guess we got off track a little bit. Mm -hmm. We shall now get back to Wonder Woman 84. Uh, So like I said, I wasn't huge on this movie, but I I like the first act a lot because it, like I said, it reminds me of the Raimi-verse a lot, uh, mainly with the first opening mall scene. And then it felt like it was kind of going for that fun, whimsical route. And I was like, all right, so it's going to set up an interesting story and characters because like uh, right off the bat, obviously we get like the montage of Max Lord and it's Pedro Pascal handling it up in the movie a ton. And he's basically Donald Trump. (laughs) I know that a lot of people argue that he's not, but like it it just reminds you so much of like, yeah, that would be Donald Trump in the 80s going around just like on television, like buy stocks in my company and stuff. And then you see that he's kind of a ruined billionaire and it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. (laughs) Um, And then I, I thought for the most part that 
the actress is escaping me. Kristen Wiig, that's who it is. Uh, her setup was honestly pretty good because she starts off as like this geeky character that kind of reminded me a lot of Jamie Foxx's Electro. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I hope this goes a lot better than that. And I'll get into my thoughts on that a little bit later. But for the most part, I like the setup of everything in the first act. Even the Wishing Stone, I thought, was set up well. The first act, I feel like, is the most solid part of this movie. But what did you think of the first act? Well, like, uh, I agree with you for a lot. And I think I'll save my thoughts on the villains for the most part when we... Okay. But, like, I like the way that they were introduced. They were actually... It was funny because, like, I was watching the movie and then, like... Uh, Max Lord and uh, Barbara were on screen together just in playing off each other. I was like, oh, oh no. Like, these characters are more interesting than Diana is. Uh, is this supposed to be working like this? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can, I can understand. Um, but anyways, like I said, so the first act's fun setting that all up. And I think it's more or less the motivations it was kind of setting up at first. <laughs> like, Diana, obviously, they were going over. She has a hole in her heart. Like, everybody is all lovey-dovey and she doesn't have Steve Trevor anymore because of his sacrifice. And I was like, yeah, I can understand being sad and lonely and just feeling like you're never going to find that true love again. Whereas Max Lord, like I said, is like Donald Trump. Like he's looking at his finances and he's losing money like crazy. His company might shut down. He can't promise his kid all of these things that he's like, yeah, yeah, this pool's coming later, buddy, and stuff. And then obviously Barbara is like Jamie Foxx. She's a nobody that no one wants to give the time of day until something magical happens to her. And so I thought that was kind of the whimsical Ramiisms of it a little bit, even some Mark Webb, because I do talk about Jamie Foxx's Electro. But I, I feel like it's just the interesting part with these characters in the beginning that really caught my interest. And when the Wishing Stone is first introduced, they play it off as a joke, obviously. It's like this guy is like, I really wish I had a coffee. And then it appears. It's like, okay, I get it. This is going to be like a reoccurring thing uh but then as the movie goes on i had to think about the consequence of that coffee he got and the consequence of many other things that happen in the movie and so i'll admit as the movie goes on you can tell the story is not really there anymore and it just more or less because becomes the max lord wishing show the plot is literally driven by Max Lord wishing for things and Diana having to stop him from granting these wishes. And it didn't feel like there was any cohesion in the plot anymore. It kind of just felt like, let's throw whatever's at the wall and hope it sticks. And I started to lose interest very fast because after a while, Max Lord was just like, I want more. And I'm like, what is that more? Never really goes into detail. He just likes granting people's wishes and having a bunch of power. But it's like, what do you really want in the end? Is it power, like supreme control? Because you're going to send the world into chaos, World War II explosions. Like, everyone's going to die and so is your kid. But, like, it just never got to a point where I was like, I feel like Max Lord has a character. At this point, I just feel like he's a big global uh, conglomerate that wants to just dominate and have more. But he doesn't know what more is. And Barbara, as the movie went on, just kept reminding me of Jamie Foxx's Electra. Like, Wonder Woman does not give her the time of day, and she gets mad about that. And then, from what I remember, her wish never says anything about the Apex Predator. It isn't until she's in the chopper with Pedro Pascal, she's like, I want to be an Apex Predator, and then she becomes Cheetah. Like, and she was getting all of, like, these instincts and abilities like a Cheetah even before she wished for it later on in the movie, but just... It felt like there were so many things going on in it, and Steve Trevor, I'll get into in a little bit, that I just checked out towards the second and third act and was like, all right, this movie kind of gave up for me. Hmm. Well, I, I guess we're talking about the villains now more in depth, so I'll uh, convey my thoughts more on them a bit more. Mm -hmm. But like before we do that, I, I kind of want to, like, if you if you uh, remember anything about the first one, I kind of want to, like, uh, get your, your opinion on what did you think of, like, 
the villains from like the original uh, Wonder Woman film. Um, okay, so I Ludendorff was the villain, and mm-hmm. so was Doctor Poison, if I remember. Yeah. Um, so Ludendorff and Doctor Poison were interesting to me because they weren't really a humongous focus, and that's it's not like these villains in the movie that get a ton of screen time. They just popped up whenever, pretty much, and. I thought Ludendorff was like a really, really goofy villain, and so was Dr. Poison, and part of the time in the movie I was checked out by them, because their goofiness levels would go a little too off the chart for me, especially at the ending when Ludendorff is hitting whatever like the cocaine is, <laughs> is in his tablets, and he just starts going to town, like throwing Diana through these metal walls and stuff, I'm like, okay, what's going on right now? But like, I felt like those villains were fine enough for that movie. But I feel like if they were given more screen time like these villains, I probably would have liked them less, kind of like I started to like these villains less in the movie. But I feel like their lack of screen time in the first one kind of helped it. Even if it did suck, we did not get great characterization for a villain. Mm -hmm. Well, like, um, like, I think it's interesting, like, uh, what I think of when, like, people talk about those characters being corny, I think of, like, the Ralph the Movie Maker uh, review of Wonder Woman, how he describes mm-hmm. them as corny and out of place. And, like, rewatching the film, I didn't really get that impression. They were more, con- like, besides the scene where they just, like, gas German high command, like, they didn't really mm-hmm. have anything that, like, over the top and corny. It was mostly just them going around being boring. But, like, yeah. um,. I do like the glow up of the villains in this films. In these films, we've gone from uh, two kind of boring characters and Nigel Thornberry in a discount Sauron costume, and now we've gone to uh, Chilean Donald Trump and a furry. And Mm, yeah, pretty much. I think uh, these these villains are more corny than those, and I also think they Mm -hmm. fit in the tone of the movie better. Okay. Yeah, I, I think my issue is that I j- their characters to me were kind of nothing. Like, Pedro Pascal, like I said, is just granting wishes, and then he'll take a little bit, like the monkey's paw. And I also just got to say this. When Pedro Pascal says, I wish to be you, the wishing stone, he probably should have turned into the stone itself. Because <laughs> that wording implies that he's wishing to become the literal stone. <laughs> he should have said something like, I wish to have your powers or something, because... The minute he said, I wish to be you, the wishing stone, I'm like, all right, he'll just turn into it and the movie's going to end because, you know, that villain plot line goes nowhere. But I get it. The movie was like, oh, no, he means on like, I want your powers. But I'm like, the wording was just bad there. But like I said, um, with Pedro Pascal as Max Lord, it just felt like after a certain point, like most of the things going on with him were just like he wants more. And that more is never, like, revealed or even answered. It just feels like, okay, he's becoming the generic, greedy, bad guy, and there's just nothing about him that I really like. And some of the wishes that he even grants in the movie, like, there's one where he goes to visit this oil tycoon, and this guy wishes for a gigantic wall to go around. I don't know if it's, like, Israel, Palestine, something like that. But he wishes for a wall to go around this country and kick out people that don't deserve to live there. And that plot line and that wish never really goes anywhere. It just kind of like goes off the grid and never comes back. And it's only in a snippet at the ending where the guy regrets wishing that. And that even happens more in the movie with like the discount president Reagan of the time. I don't know if Reagan was president in 84. Mm. I, I would assume that's who yeah. they're going for. But like even his wish of like, I want more nuclear missiles felt unrealistic. It just felt like every time Pedro Pascal grabbed somebody, he was like, don't you wish I had this? And they said it. That was too much for me. That was too goofy and felt too unrealistic, and I just didn't buy most of what was going on with his character in the movie. Well, what I think is interesting about him is um, 
like the movie doesn't outright say it because like the movie is more focused on like uh barbara's wish because like they have to outright say like Mm -hmm. oh barbara uh you're becoming more like wonder woman you have all these powers but like it's costing you your humanity and like they're kind of blatant with a lot of the messages in the film like that but what i think was interesting like thinking about the movie is that um they don't really say what the negative consequences of uh max lord's wish was like you mainly get like Mm -hmm. uh his health is deteriorating because like he can't he isn't taking his medication stuff like that Mm -hmm. but like to me uh the negative effect of him wishing to become the stone is that uh he's becoming less and less focused because like i assume like his original wish when he got that power was that oh i just wish my oil company would do well right you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i yeah, I think his original plan, or part of that, probably was like world domination and takeover. Because, you know, I'm I'm not gonna compare it to like Donald Trump or anything, <laughs> but like somebody in a higher powered position would like to control an aspect of the country. Which I would have loved if he was like, I wish to be the president or something mm-hmm. like that, because that would have been interesting that he takes over the country. But instead, like I said, it becomes generic greedy bad yeah. guy once more. He wants everything, and I'm like, I can't, I can't vibe with this. And I will admit. I like Pedro's performance mm-hmm. even in this movie. And I know some people have said it's really bad, but I feel like, like I said, it reminds me of Raimi in a lot of ways. And like those villains were always over the top. I mean, I love Willem Dafoe and <laughs> Goblin. I will take that cheesiness all day. And that's why I think it worked for me so well. Um, but I guess since I'm being cynical about Max Lord, you can try to spin this positive. Well, um, I think like, um, the main thing of him becoming more unfocused is like how with Barbara you have her becoming like more and less and less emotional. Uh, Max Lord becomes more and more like the stone. Like he doesn't really care about his like original plan, whatever it was, if it was just to like make his company do well. He becomes less focused on that and he becomes more interested in granting people's wishes, like how the stone did. So like it's less about him being like, oh, I want more. He's like, oh, I have duties to fulfill. And those come first in front yeah. of everything. Like it comes in front of like anything, any other uh, like priorities for him. Like in the in the first part of the film, like he cares a lot about his son and all that. But like now, when he's becoming more and more like this gigantic wish machine, like he cares less about that. He doesn't really care about his son. He doesn't really care about like the effect that he's having on the world. He's his he's only mm-hmm. focused on his wish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll admit the sun plotline gets dropped almost. <laughs> like he he only shows up when it's convenient, and I'm like, okay, this feels a little bit underwritten in that aspect because you get the one scene where he's like, I wish for your greatness, Dad, and then of course like Pedro Pascal is like, no, you can't use your one wish on that, but it happens anyways. And you know, there's some aspects that are underwritten, but I want to get into Barbara now because, like I said, reminds me so much of Jamie Foxx's Electro. And I don't want to be negative, because, like, even Jamie Foxx, I have to, like, I can't blame him for the script. It's not his fault. And, like, that's the thing that, and I'll just go on a little tangent here, like, in Hollywood, if there is an actor or actress that's working with a script that's bad, it's not their fault their character is written that way. Blame the writer, blame the director, blame whoever you want. It's not their fault, because we've seen it happen in Star Wars Mm -hmm. plenty of times and other franchises, but it's not her fault her character is written like Jamie Foxx's Spider-Man, Electro. Uh, One thing I got to say 
I, I didn't like about Barbara is because it, it felt like they just kind of copied and pasted that from The Amazing hmm. Spider-Man 2, where Barbara has one bad interaction and she starts getting mad and more focused and becoming more of like this hateful, hurtful person and is turning into that apex predator. And even at the ending when she becomes the terribly CGI cheetah, uh, I just checked out because it reminded me so much of Jamie Foxx's Electro, which even had questionable CGI in that movie. And I know that's like 2013 now, but like Barbara's character never really felt like it had an mm-hmm. art for me, nor or less it felt like a character to me. It just felt like Jamie Foxx's Electro the entire movie, and then she has one big fight at the ending, and then disappears after that, after she renounces her yeah. wish. And that's never resolved. And it's the same thing with Pedro Pascal at the ending. His plotline is never resolved. He never gets a consequence for literally ruining yeah, the Yeah, I have to say, that kind of like, like, that kind of annoyed me at the end, like, uh, Pedro Pascal, like, he gets, reconnects with the son, he's like, I'm sorry, uh, I was such a bad father, I cared more about my company more than I cared about you, and I'm gonna try to do better, and, like, I legitimately almost cried when I saw that, and, but, like, it doesn't go anywhere, it just, like, cuts to woman, Wonder Woman, uh, talking with that guy that she, uh, that Chris Pine's soul was possessing and i'm like well what happened to the villains like are you serious but like um Mm -hmm. yeah i kind of like what was it what i liked about these two villains is uh to kind of go back to the first wonder woman a little bit is that i think that the movie utilized them a lot better because like with the first wonder woman you kind of have these three villains one of whom isn't even present for most of the movie and um they're not really fleshed out they're kind of cliched and bland but like with these two yeah. uh you get more of a sense of who they are the movie does a really good job of following them really well and it's like to go off mm-hmm. of your comments about um uh barbara being a lot like jamie fox's electro uh, i actually have never seen uh Amazing Spider-Man 2 as of when we're recording this, but like I've seen so many reviews of it on YouTube like I feel like I've seen it if that makes sense. So like I understand where you're coming from like that, but I kind of have to disagree of it being too similar. Because like I feel like uh, direct one-to-one comparisons when people say things like that, like for example, oh uh, Force Awakens is just a copy of Episode 4. I think that uh, removes the context of like the differences between them and so i think the main difference between um jamie fox's electro and uh barbara or cheetah or whatever you want to call her is that uh the movie actually uh dedicates time to like showing her progression into becoming this villainous character because jamie fox because that movie is so full of subplots they don't really have time to focus on him becoming this corny supervillain because like, they have to uh, set up Green Goblin and a Sinister Six movie and all this other crap that we're not going to get because so, because Marvel is doing stuff with Spider-Man now. But, like, with Barbara, mm-hmm. like, you see more of her progression into this villainous character because of her humanity slowly draining away. So you kind of get more of a sense of why she's becoming evil, where with Jamie Foxx, since there's Lila so little focus on him he kind of just instantly becomes evil 
Mm-hmm. And I will admit, the when you brought up the subplots points from The Amazing Spider-Man 2, that's what this movie gave me vibes of a lot, is there's a lot of, like, wish subplots that either get dropped or disappear, and even, like I said, parts of the movie even get dropped towards the ending, and that's why it reminded me so much of that movie, because, like I said, there are so many aspects of it, and even characters I thought was underwritten. Now, I want to touch on Chris Pine, because this one has been shaky for some people. I have a very, very hard time in this movie with the fact that he is possessing another man's body. It felt creepy to me, I'm not gonna lie, that he was possessing this other man's body, and then Barbara has sex with this complete stranger in the movie, and she's just perfectly fine with this, and does not really care about the fact that she has possessed this man's body when, like, maybe this man's got a family. I know they kind of said in the movie he doesn't really have a wife or kids or anything, but, like, maybe he's got parents or friends that are wondering where he's at, and he's been completely possessed, and it really did not make a whole lot of sense why Chris Pine had to possess another body. Like, if the stone can do literally anything, manifest anything, why couldn't it manifest a body for Chris Pine? Like, they probably talk about it in the comics, but I've never read the comic around this, so, like, I wouldn't know, but it just felt like that entire plotline was super creepy to me and chris pine in the movie it, he serves some narrative purpose but a lot of it is just him doing like the fish out of water things that we've seen in like the first wonder woman thor a bunch of other things like i i just felt like chris pine in this movie was either underutilized or could have been scratched off in a way but i don't know your thoughts on him possessing well, the body or anything mm-hmm. like that or, well yeah but go on the thing that Well, like, I didn't really think about that aspect of the film until, like, afterwards when I heard people talking more about, um, oh yeah, uh, Wonder Woman kind of, uh, had sex with this person against their will, because, like, I saw the Shadversity video of, like, uh, Wonder Woman, uh, mm -hmm, a guy, and I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. I really hope this isn't clickbait, and I watched the movie, and, like, it didn't really hit until, like, I started seeing this criticism where I was like, uh... That that's kind of, yeah. So that didn't really mm-hmm. bother me when I first watched the movie. Um, but like, as for like Chris Pine himself, I think it's interesting, like the way that they used him in the movie. Like, I kind of like before I saw this movie, um, and I saw um, him show up in the trailers. I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of annoying. They're kind of doing like a Winter Soldier type thing where he's back alive again. This is just uh, DC copying Marvel. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of like how um, uh, like how Ralph says in his video on Wonder Woman that uh, the first Wonder Woman kind of feels like it wants to be set in World War II, but uh, it can't be because yeah. Captain America is set in World War II. But like, I think I like, uh, I liked, I ended up liking what they did with Chris Pine in this movie. I, um, I think the fish out of water, the fish out of water story, uh, doesn't bother me too much when it shows up. I, maybe I just haven't mm-hmm. seen enough movies to get tired of that cliche. Because like one of my favorite okay. uh, sequences in this film was just like him uh, trying on different clothes, but making sure he wore a fanny pack with like each outfit he put on or whatever. But like I liked how um, similar it kind of felt to like him and wonder woman's relationship in the first movie like i still think that uh that is probably like the best aspect of the first film because like that romance felt really good and uh made sense like which is something that you don't really get with superhero films 
and uh, I would say that this is yeah. almost on the same level if it wasn't for uh, the fact that Wonder Woman is just hooking up with some random guy that's possessed by the soul of Chris Pine. And yeah, yeah. Um, boy, what was I going to make a point <laughs> off that? Oh, um, so I got to say about Diana because. One thing about this movie I think they did well was kind of her little mini arc about having to learn to give up things. She can't be greedy for things. Like, she wants to keep Chris Pine around, but it's at the cost of her powers. And so, one thing that was interesting was, and like, she's not completely mortal in the movie, but she is somewhat mortal because she's actually taking bullets hit. She doesn't really have her strength as much as she had once in the movie. And like, you just slowly see that every time she loses her powers a little bit more, it's kind of breaking Chris Pine's heart a little bit because he knows he's the consequence. And I thought it was a good arc to see Diana finally give up something she always wanted and be mature enough to be the hero they need to be. And at the same time, I would also say that there are also some parts about Diana I did not like in this movie. Like, for instance, they introduce out of nowhere that she can basically turn things invisible. Like, she alludes that she's been practicing it for a while and obviously creates mm -hmm. the invisible jet. But then I just think in the greater DCU, why would she not use these powers for many other things later on? Even her flying ability, I don't think, is present in the later Justice League movies. Like, there are a lot of things in this movie that are not in the continuation of the universe. I know some people are going to be like, ah, you're being nitpicky. But, like, if they want to go for this continuation of the Snyderverse thing, you got to keep some continuity with the universe. Like, for example, this whole Doomsday scenario is going on in Wonder Woman 84, and, like, none of the other Justice League members batted an eye at it. Like, Superman was probably on Earth at the time. Batman was probably <laughs> going around doing things. Like, nobody tried to figure out what's going on. I'm just... I, I couldn't buy it in some certain aspects. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, like, to go off of that point, like, uh, about, like, the superhero point before going back and talking about some of your others, I think, like, um, it's kind of like how in, like, some of the solo Marvel movies up until a certain point... You're like, oh, uh, Hydra's taken over the U.S. government and is about to send helicarriers and blow crap up. Why aren't the Avengers doing this? I yeah. think it's kind of more like um, you kind of have to like suspend the disbelief a little bit, if I'm using that term correctly, and just be like, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. you probably can't think too hard about this or else it takes away from the movie, <laughs> which is unfortunate. Yeah, and to comment on that, yeah, the reason I think that it didn't work for this movie is because like countries are sending nukes yeah. at each other at the ending literally war is about to break out and this feels like a justice mm -hmm. league scenario so it would imply the justice league would want to do something about it now what i like about the winter soldier is that it's condensed to dc and it doesn't go as far out besides that mm. the helicarriers are going up and it's all right there because captain america can stop it all right there and like i don't know was this before or after civil it's war civil i think war. it's before right okay and like i remember was age of ultron yeah. After that, I, also, I I trying to I think haven't about seen those movies in the, in a while. Oh yeah, I get yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, um, but like, yeah, it it felt like it was something small Captain America could take down. Whereas in this movie, this is a large yeah. world-ending event, and it feels like it takes a team up yeah. to stop all of this. And I know that I'm being nitpicky, and some people will say that, but like that was the biggest push for me. That was the <laughs> hardest to buy. Yeah, yeah, I can I understand where you're coming from. But like to get back mm -hmm. to your point about Wonder talking about Wonder Woman, um, I think I actually prefer her journey in this movie to the first one because, like, uh, I think okay. Ralph touches on it a bit, uh, where he's like, uh, Wonder Woman doesn't really have to try 
as hard in that movie where Chris Pine is like, oh, that that's no man's land, Wonder Woman. Uh, you, you can't go there and or else the or else. Sorry, uh, that's my watch going off. I don't know if you could hear that. Um, no, but like Chris Pine is no, just like, oh, Wonder Woman, you can't go into no man's land or you'll die. And then Wonder Woman just does it and wins. And then Chris Pine is just like, oh, you can't just kill Ares. That won't cause World War One to magically end. And then she does, and World War One magically ends. But like, I think in this movie, mm-hmm. she had to struggle a lot. And I think uh, that was really good for her to follow because like. One of the problems for me with the DC, with the DCEU, is that, especially with Justice League, is that I think uh, too many of the characters are just invincible powerhouses. Like, because you have like Superman and he can just, he doesn't get hurt by too much. And yeah. And then like Aquaman, he's invincible. And then Wonder Woman, she's invincible too. So, like, how are you supposed to, like, feel, uh, like, any kind of tension in their movies when, like, they're pretty much invincible and there's not really much that can hurt them? But I think what Wonder Woman 84 does really well is that it makes her struggles really interesting to go through. Because, like, she has to struggle. Like, Mm -hmm. the first scene, like, I picked up on was, like, when they're breaking into Max Lord's house and she has to struggle to, like, break the lock on that one door. That's when you kind of notice that, oh, wait, she's actually starting to struggle with using her powers. What's up with that? And then, like, when she gets shot in the desert when they're uh, trying to hunt down Max Lord after he's talking with that oil baron, you're like, oh, crap. Like, she's, like, she's not invincible. Like, she's losing her powers because of this. Like, it was more interesting to follow her because she had to struggle in her journey in this movie. And, like, even after she gets, like, her powers back and she can fly, like, it still it kind of felt like um, her powers were, like, coming back much more slowly. And that's why she wore that uh, suit of armor at the end, which, uh, for the record, I didn't really like. Neither did I, um, because, and I guess I'll touch on this, the first 20 minutes of this movie are just kind of, mm, in my opinion, like, you could cut it out almost and nothing happens, because what I thought it was going to set up was, like, uh, Diana cheats at the beginning, I'm like, oh, is this movie going to about, like, not being to cut, like, not cutting corners to get what you want, I'm like, that'd be interesting, but then it's just to set up the suit of armor and nothing more besides that. And I, like, even in this movie, they have, like, just a throwaway moment when Chris Pine's like, oh, what's this? And she's like, I belong to our best warrior. I'm like, well, then you could have cut out the entire beginning because it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Like, even when she wears the armor at the ending, I'll admit, that is, like, interesting to see her, like, her powers are slowly coming back and having to defend herself from the terribly (laughs) CGI cat's cheetah. Um, But, like, the thing about it is, um, with Diana, I would say... The comparison to the first movie, what I think she struggles with the most in the first movie is inherently believing humanity is not inherently evil. Like, she is like, no, it has to be a god that's doing this. It's making man so evil. And she struggles with that fact that man just can't be evil on its own. And so when Chris Pine finally drops the bombshell after she's killed Ludendorff and is like, no, you don't get it. Humanity is just going to be evil no matter what. There's bad people in this world, but good people can fix it. I thought, like, that was good to see her grow. And by the ending, she's like... Yeah, okay, that makes more sense that obviously humans would just naturally be evil because, you know, World War II is going to happen sometime after. 
And it felt like it was a good progression in that movie. And I'll admit, in this movie, I do like your points on it feels like Diana struggles more in this movie, even if we both agree the suit of armor yeah. probably wasn't And easy. to touch on this quick, since we kind of got into it with um, mentioning the first movie, I think the things that I hated the most about the first movie when I originally saw it was like the Greek myth aspect and the uh, World War One aspect. Because like uh, I grew up reading a lot of greek myth stuff like not as not so much other things like it was mostly just fantasy type things that i was into and like greek was myth was like the most myth stuff i got into like i could probably criticize like the mcu for how it depicts norse mythology but that's something i don't know as much about and i think they do probably represent more faithfully like actually having like the gods be bad people but like i think uh, the first Wonder Woman, it leans too much into like the common ways that uh, gods are depicted in uh, other pieces of media, like those new newer Clash of the Titan films, like where the gods are either evil or they're dead, uh, stuff like that. And it was weird with the Wonder Woman because like rewatching it, it it seems to have like more resi- the Greek mythology in that movie seems to resemble uh, Christianity a lot more. Like Zeus makes mankind in his image. Uh, man gets tempted into being evil by Ares, who acts more like a devilish figure. And um, mm-hmm. I like that this movie pretty much like had no aspects of Greek mythology in it whatsoever, except for uh, like the god that the Greek god or dc character or whoever that makes the wishing stone yeah and i'll agree with that too i i like the the aries uh plot line in the first movie i like some of the greek stuff in this one it felt like they didn't want to commit to it like they just dropped it as soon as it was brought up and it was like no nah, i don't think we're gonna do the greek myth thing anymore i'm like okay well that that plot line could have been written out but like for the most part, um, as this movie progresses, like I said, and we've talked about like all of the things that we've kind of liked and disliked about it, the finale is mm-hmm. kind of the craziest thing to me. Because um, I don't like the cheetah fight at all. It's not rendered very... And that was another issue, too, with this movie. I guess I'll get into the action for me. I get that like DC does not have the resources Marvel does, but why does this look like it was made in the early 2000s? And I get it, they're going for the Raimiisms feel, but like, there's a shot of Wonder Woman running with both arms going back and forth against the green screen, and you can tell it's a green screen. And then like, I think you've seen uh, when she picks up the two kids on the road, and she rolls with them, and you can clearly <laughs> tell they're props. Like, stuff just, yeah, stuff sticks out like a sore thumb in this movie. And I don't know if that's just DC's inability to adapt and do what Marvel does better, or just like they they like their low budget thing. I I don't yeah, get it. I kind you of understand like, it. I kind of understand where you're coming from. I didn't really get that impression with like the special effects of this movie. Like there were some things that like kind of irked me. Like uh, Cheetah wasn't something that really stuck out to me that much. I thought like and honestly like oh, really? after seeing. Um, the finale of uh the old of the first wonder woman film and then like thinking back to when i saw wonder woman 84 i was like wow like the um cg the special effects may have some faults in um some parts of wonder woman 88 but the films and the the special effects in the first film are just so much worse like uh the one scene i can think of is when uh the unnecessary side characters in the first Wonder Woman, uh, they just blow up 
a um air bunker or whatever it's called and it looks like a video game cutscene. it just looks so terrible and like so does like the entire finale it's just a cgi nightmare and like i guess like so is the finale of this one but it's not just a giant Zack snyder yeah. battle like the the final battle in this like aside from like the fight with cheetah it's more of a dialogue exchange yeah yeah and I'll admit, the plot line with the whole, like, Star Wars program of satellites, that was where I started to really just, I, like, slouched in my seat more. I was like, oh, okay, they're gonna introduce this plot device, which will allow good old Max Lord to stand on this thing at the ending and just scream into, like, the Aether about how he has everything. And I was like, I, I did not like this particle machine getting introduced and how everyone could hear him. And, like, somehow the Lasso of Truth gets yeah. on Max's foot at the ending. I don't know if she, like, whipped it on him off screen or what happened, but, like, somehow it gets on there. And then just at the ending, he realizes what he's doing is going to affect his son. And I get it because he's blinded by green the entire movie. But I'm like, does that thought never enter your head that the more you take, the more is going to disappear in this world? Also, can I just point out how nobody's minds are erased by this event? So the DCEU just goes on as normal after this. They're like, yeah, the world just about ended, but hey, I guess we'll go back to yep. normal society. Russia will continue the Cold War with America. Yeah, um, so. like, I don't know if you noticed this, but like in the film, when like uh, President not Ronald Reagan is talking about that system, they literally name drop Star Wars. Like, it honestly felt like they were yeah. trying to take a dig at Star Wars, which, I mean, like, granted, with, like, kind of, like, how rocky, like, it's kind of been with Star Wars, not to, like, make any jabs at it, because, like, that's not what we're trying to do right now, at least, um, but, like, it felt kind of like yeah. they're just like, oh, look at, look at, uh, look at our DC films, look at how they're so much better than Star Wars, which was kind of weird. But, um, and even with, like, Max Lord stepping on the pedestal so he can finally become the Senate, just like with Palpatine. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I kind of get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And so, the, then this movie kind of ends with, like, a Hallmark thing. And I was sitting there like, all right, this is kind of, it reminds me of a Hallmark movie. And I was like, okay, this is nice, like Christmas time. And then Diana flies again. And I'm like, all right, they're going to end on like a whimsical kind of thing. And then they had the little cameo at the ending, which I thought was sweet. That was nice to see. Um, oh, do you know the, the I, name of the original not, Wonder Woman? But I did, I did yeah, not know that that was her. Like when I saw that uh, thing of her, mm -hmm. I just like, oh, they, I don't like that. Like, I thought like her, the flashback of Hysteria, like that's what her character's name was. Like, I like I like that flashback of her just fighting all the men. It felt like they were taking jabs at Zack Snyder because like all the men she was fighting looked like uh, three hundred Spartans. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was kind of yeah, funny. Yeah, but like I did not like seeing her at like the very um, end. Like, oh, even though she died, she's actually alive. But I thought I thought it was sweet that they got um, the Wonder Woman from like her, the actor that played Wonder Woman in the seventies to play her. I thought that was a nice touch. That's a nice touch, and I think she's probably <laughs> going to be back for Wonder Woman three. They they alluded to which that'll be interesting. 
Um, but like I said, with the DCU just being mm-hmm. a continuity mess, who knows what'll happen at this point. Um, but yeah, so I didn't like Wonder Woman 84, and after talking about it, I still don't really like the movie. I, I enjoy your perspectives, though. It's always good to see somebody come on and tell me, like, hey, this is how you could be looking at it. Um, there's just, I don't think this is a strong enough movie for me to ever rewatch again, necessarily. And that's not a dig at DC or anything. It's like, even there are Marvel movies I wouldn't watch again. I'm just like so bored with them. I'm like, I'm not, I'm never going to touch them again. Like when Endgame was coming out, I did a Marvel rewatch and I was like, I'm not doing this again. That's too many movies. But like superhero Mm -hmm. movies are always a tough sell for me. There are some I'll rewatch. Like I love Logan. I think it's a fantastic finale to Wolverine as a character. So I'd rewatch that one all day, obviously. Uh, I really like Infinity War, not as much Endgame, but I think that's a very good MCU movie. I like The Winter Soldier. Like, there are certain ones that really have to click with me to rewatch, but this one, I've seen it twice now, and I probably will not see <laughs> yeah, it. Like, um, I can kind of agree with what you're saying about um, superhero films. Like, I kind of been starting to get this impression of the Marvel movies, too. Just like mainly, I guess maybe because I haven't seen them in a while, I've started to become disillusioned with them. I don't know. Maybe I have to rewatch them again. But like, I kind of get what you're saying about like cape flicks not being as entertaining. Maybe it's just like a getting older type of thing where you start to appreciate less just mindless action and more like good stories. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it could be. Um, but like I said, it's hard for me. Um, so I, I could put a bow on everything, but I would have to go back mm-hmm. and recap everything we talked about. Um, whatever my rating is on Letterboxd, I gave it. I think that's the rating I'll keep it at because my opinions have not changed on the movie after seeing it twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very nice for you to come on, though, to talk about this movie. Um, I'm glad that I got your perspective on it from a more positive angle versus me being kind of cynical. Um, I, I did enjoy this experiment of doing the podcast, though. You were mm-hmm. a very good uh, intern co-host, and so... You're welcome to come back and whenever talk about whatever movie you want that comes out next. I know we're in a pandemic still and not a whole lot's coming out unless you got HBO Max, but whatever yeah. you're interested in. And next, thank you for having me, me on. Like I don't I feel like there were some things that I wanted to get into in a, a little bit more, but like I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about like the way that um Wonder Woman didn't feel the first Wonder Woman didn't feel like it was too accurate to the time period it was set in or maybe like get back to you more on the ending but like i think we covered a lot so i don't really but we have almost like an hour of oh, yeah, audio did. recorded <laughs> but uh yeah i think i would love yeah. to come back another oh, yeah. time and talk about more movies with you maybe later on this year we can get together and talk about the snyder cut potentially yeah 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 we could probably talk about that there's there's yeah. godzilla vs kong that's coming out there's if black widow ever gets a release there's a few a24 films i'm still holding out for dearly mm-hmm. but we'll have to see what happens because this year is still yeah. gonna look like 2020 mm-hmm. i guess which is crazy to think about um but anyways so thank you for coming on dalton like i said uh westmore films this is youtube channel he just posted a brand new mandalorian season two review it's a very good analysis um So thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening to Hayden's Entertainment.